Without further ado, Dr. Alan Fleischer uh, is the professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at Wake Forest University Health Sciences, director of general dermatology, dermatology clinics, and the co-director of the Center for Dermatology Research. He trained as an undergraduate and medical student at the University of Mar uh, Missouri in Columbia. His residency and chief residency uh, in dermatology were completed at UNC Chapel Hill, whereupon he joined the faculty of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He is published five dermatology textbooks, over 280 peer-reviewed articles, and has presented results from his research and medical care throughout the United States and five continents. Since 2000, he's been selected by his peers as one of the best doctors in America. He is also now the medical director of dermatology at MERS. Uh, please welcome Dr. Fleischer. He'll be doing uh, two talks back-to-back -back due to scheduling issues, so he'll be doing urticaria and nail updates. Thanks, thanks, Lauren. Well, this is a pretty impressive crowd for uh, this early in the morning, although, you know, I was paranoid and I set my alarm. I set two alarms and, oh, by the way, my eyes popped open at 4.45 when they normally do anyway, so it doesn't seem to make any difference. Uh, I've always figured there's plenty of time to sleep when you die. Well, um, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite topics, and there was a scheduling glitch. Um, I agreed to do this talk a long time ago. Lauren had asked me, which was really lovely, and I appreciate talking in front of this uh, group interested in learning. But uh, since that time, um, uh, I discovered that my nephew is getting married in St. Louis this weekend, so I've got to dash immediately from here to St. Louis. Well, I'm not in a rush to get there because, quite honestly, uh, on CNN this morning, there's a heat wave going through mid-America, and it's supposed to hit 97 degrees today. And, oh, by the way, it's an outdoor wedding, so <laughs> no rush in getting there. So we'll talk first a little bit about urticaria. Um, it's one of my hobbies. Um, just for curiosity's sake, if you let known uh, in your area that you're interested in urticaria, the people come from out of the woodwork, because uh, quite honestly, a lot of people aren't interested in treating these patients, and you know, these patients are really miserable. Um, so, oh, let me just skip this. I had a computer glitch. Um, these are all of my, um, these are all of my uh, conflicts, and I have numerous. Um, at our university now, we no longer um, allow um, speakerships uh, for pharmaceutical companies. I don't do that anymore. Um, it's the wave of the future. Well, this guy presented about uh, uh, 10 kilos overweight, um, striking urticarial eruption. This was Saturday night, um, uh, chest and abdomen, back. By the way, this is me. So, you know, when you live in the family of a dermatologist that always has a high-resolution camera available, interesting things happen. And so, by the way, this is my son. Now he's about six foot two tall, uh, and, you know, he's, he's huge, taking the SAT today. But uh, uh, this was him with his bout of acute urticaria, just like uh, me. Um, his lasted for about a week. Now, this is my daughter, Rebecca, uh, and um, so uh, she has uh, urticaria, um, and so she's got these linear streaks. She's got a little bit of angioedema going on right here. Isn't that nice? So um, uh, now, Rebecca's actually um, one of twins, um, and in the first week of my daughter Sarah's life, her twin, she had um, uh, a contact urticaria due to a, a topical antibiotic exposure. But uh, in that first week of life of twins, I was 
comatose. And I couldn't get a picture. I didn't even think about getting a picture, so you'll forgive me. Um, so, all right. Now, this weekend, I'm going to see my nephew, Eli. This is his urticaria. Now, Eli lives in California, but he used to live in, in Kansas City. Um, and uh, a fellow that uh, we had this, um, this uh, student, actually, who was with us for a number of uh, weeks back years and years ago. And anyway, so my nephew Eli presented. And so this, uh, this dermatologist out in Kansas City, Dr. Teuschler, calls me up and says, I'm seeing your nephew Eli, da 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 da, what should we do? You know, because she remembers that back when she was a student, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I, I, you know, I talked about urticaria. And, you know, here this is the nephew of a you know, dermatologist who talks about urticaria. So why not uh, consult him? He was easy to manage, no trouble. Okay, so real brief. This guy presented with less than 24 hours of urticarial wheels, okay? Itchy, miserable, um, and quite honestly, um, this is acute urticaria. Typically, it lasts for, you know, uh, uh, up to six weeks. By definition, if it lasts longer than six weeks, it's chronic. One patient came to see me one time and said, well, um, I read that urticaria cannot last longer than six weeks, so this can't be urticaria. I said, you read the wrong stuff. I mean, just because it's out there on the internet doesn't mean it happens to be correct. I like the internet. It's a very rich resource. On the other hand, everything people read is not necessarily correct. Wheels typically last a few hours, max 24 hours. If you believe that it's not a wheel, you know, rather than doing a biopsy, you can take a Sharpie marking pen, circle around a spot, and if it doesn't move within 24 hours, it's not urticaria. This is my dear bride. I'm going to meet up with her in St. Louis today. And she's had, um, I don't know, somewhere around a decade of chronic urticaria. That's her front. That's her back. Uh, this is, uh, it's very nice to have uh, cameras available. Um, so chronic urticaria lasts a long time. And uh, there's very little evidence that suggests that it's due to a single allergen in any individual, although it could be. Um, and this is frustrating. In a uh, prospective study that was done in the Netherlands, um, one of the questions that was asked, and, and patients were followed prospectively for a year, was, um, well, doc, you know, uh, how long does it last? Well, these uh, uh, patients with chronic urticaria um, uh, were followed prospectively for a year, and if they had idiopathic urticaria um, or urticaria and angioedema, then about half of um, patients' disease was gone in a year. But if they had only angioedema and no skin signs, or if they had a physical urticaria, only one in five had their disease resolution in a year. Your job is not to cure patients unless uh, there's some miracle that happens. Patients are sent to me and they said, well, Dr. Fleischer is going to cure you. Well, I'm sad to mis misinform them. My job is to make them comfortable. My job is to tell them the truth. If they don't want to hear the truth, they can seek opinions elsewhere. And I'm very dogmatic about such things. It doesn't bother me um, uh, to tell them the truth. Now, this is a physical form of urticaria present in 5% of the American um, adult population, which is, what is this? Dermatographism, right, right. And, you know, there are lots of kinds of physical urticarias. And what I mean by physical urticaria, some type of skin trauma, and I use trauma very broadly, um, will induce uh, urticaria in the distribution of the trauma. 
And that kind of trauma can be solar exposure, um, water exposure, vibration, deep pressure, uh, you know, dermatographism, um, uh, you name it. You know, there's cold urticaria. We are interesting uh, immunologic creatures. This is a picture of one of our nurses, Christy, who used to work with me, but now works with one of the other of my colleagues. And within minutes of exposure to latex, she began to itch and then urticate just in the distribution of the exposure. This is called contact urticaria. And contact urticaria is just an interesting phenomenon. It's really quite uncommon, but you know, uh, it's bizarre. And it can be reported to all kinds of things, like exposure to kiwi fruits and shiitake mushrooms. Um, now, a gal came to see me um, a number of years ago uh, and uh, stated that her, when her dog licked her, she developed a strange and streaky rash just where her dog licked her. And furthermore, any other dog can lick her, and she did not develop the same rash. And I said, you know, this has been reported a couple times in the literature as uh, uh, contact urticaria due to dog saliva. And uh, you know, I'm sitting there, we've got internet access in every one of our exam rooms, pulled up the abstract from contact dermatitis. And by the way, you know, here are your options. You can kill the dog, you can give the dog away, you can pre-medicate, you can put up with it. Well, her story, um, maybe she's lying, but her story, and I believe her, is that um, she had seen multiple other physicians before me, and they all did the same number. You know, they rolled their eyes up in their head, another nutcase. Um, you know, quite honestly, we see a lot of crazy people. There's no doubt about it. However, this was real. Now, and she loved her dog. She just wanted some vindication. She didn't even want to be treated. She just wanted a name. She knew it was happening. Just because you've never heard of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I was giving um, this uh, same talk uh, 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 to a group of physicians just last month, and one of the physicians in the group came up and told me the story that indeed her dog, when her dog licks her, she also develops contact urticaria in the distribution of the dog licking her, it lasts a few hours, disappears, she loves her dog, she doesn't even care about the urticaria, it's, it's worth it because she loves the dog. So the only reason I'm bringing this up is that if you hear enough crazy, bizarre stories, some of them deserve believing. Now, the one I worry most about is latex exposure because we use latex all the time. Actually, in my hospital now, we no longer even touch patients with latex. Uh, I like latex gloves a lot better than what we use now, but it's not my choice. But quite honestly, if a patient tells you that they're allergic to latex, just don't touch them with it. Most of them are lying to you. They don't really know the truth, but why risk it? I mean, it isn't worth it. So uh, I was giving um, uh, a lecture a number of years ago on urticaria in uh, Georgia, and uh, one of the uh, dermatologists there told me the story. He's profoundly allergic to latex, and um, he, uh, he had a drug rep bring in lunch, some sandwiches. He ate one of the sandwiches, but what he didn't know before eating one of the sandwiches is that the sandwiches were prepared with someone wearing latex gloves. And he immediately developed anaphylaxis, both GI as well as respiratory anaphylaxis. Subsequently, he spent a few days in the ICU getting uh, continuous infusion solumedrol and respiratory support. Now, the only reason I'm telling you this is that when people say that they're allergic to latex, 
why bother to touch them? It isn't worth it, you know? I've had, I've had now uh, just one code in my career. As far as I'm concerned, that's my uh, limit. You know, I don't want any dermatology codes. I used to be in internal medicine. We were used to it in the ICUs. No codes in the office, please. Okay, a guy came to see me, and he had totally normal skin, but he said, you know, when I exercise, I develop a rash. Now, I don't know what people are talking about. You know, you know we can describe things as having, you know, serpiginous borders and perforaceous scale. You know, patients in North Carolina describes, you know, things like whelps and blisters. That's their dermatologic lexicon. Um, and it's not that they're trying to lie to you when they say they have blisters. They just don't use appropriate terminology because they haven't been trained as you have. So, um, anyway, at this point, uh, I was seeing patients on the ninth floor of a building. So I had them run down 10 floors and run back up 10 floors in the uh, stairwell. And he presented back with this kind of eruption, which is exercise-induced urticaria, or also called cholinergic urticaria. And, you know, people develop wheels in association with getting hot, with getting sweaty, with uh, water exposure. Um, and uh, actually, uh, my best friend's wife has this, uh, you know, it doesn't bother enough to do much about it. But, you know, we all know about things like exercise-induced asthma. This is just a little bit different. So when I evaluate a person uh, for urticaria, I don't spend three hours in the room. Maybe you guys have three hours, but I try to get in and out quickly, but efficiently. I want a little bit of history. I want to focus on recent infections, new drugs, uh, uh, food exposures that are temporally relevant, and contactants if it's very limited in time and space. And I'm never disappointed if I find no cause. In fact, I expect to find no cause. Most of the patients I see come in from other docs, and you know they've already looked for causes. I give up. Um, uh, well, just real brief, infections. You can get an infection of sinusitis and then develop um, a short time later um, a little bit of urticaria. Okay, what a surprise. You've got wee beasties um, in your system. They're releasing all kinds of nasty things. And could you have a reaction to that? You bet. But of course, the complicating thing is, okay, they were, uh, you know, they have uh, sinusitis and they were treated with some appropriate antibiotic. Could it be a reaction to the infection? You bet. Could it be a reaction to the antibiotic? You bet. Could it be a reaction to something totally unrelated? You bet. Hard to know. So, you know, obviously we're not going to reinduce uh, uh, germs into their uh, uh, sinuses to retest them and see what does it. If you leave the United States and you go to um, uh, uh, very rural parts of the world, um, there are huge issues. You know, here in the United States, we basically have essentially no parasitosis. Okay, there's a little bit, but almost no parasitosis. However, However, in rural Pakistan, it's estimated that 50% of the population right now has parasites in their system, okay? 50% is not rare. Now, what does rural Pakistan have to do with us sitting here in the JW Marriott Hotel? Well, you know, last week I was in South Korea for the World Congress of Dermatology. It took me 19 hours to get there. Um, from my little town of Winston-Salem, I can get to any major city of the world within 24 hours. I can get to virtually any minor village within 72 hours. I'm not the only one who travels. 
There are people out there who travel. You know, there are people in my area that, that uh, you know, they're missionaries and they spend their life in rural China. They spend, they go all kinds of other places. Ask the question. If someone has chronicer to carry in particular, uh, and it's, you know, they're exotic travelers, it's at least worth thinking about that. Now, this is a gal who came in with a wonderful temporal history. She had just started a new drug, tapazole, for her hyperthyroidism a, a day or two before the onset of this eruption. That's the temporal history I'm looking for. Not, you know, what usually happens is patients come in to see me and they say, I know just what this is. I've been on hydrochlorothiazide for 35 years and it caught up with me. Well, I guess it's theoretically possible, but if you've been on hydrochlorothiazide for 35 years and it hasn't caused an eruption, it's not very likely. And drugs, any drug in theory can cause urticaria, and so, you know, you're looking for temporal histories, but one thing that's important is we have um, these sort of mast cell destabilizers, opiates, um, radiographic contrast media, not that that's very relevant, uh, aspirin is relevant, and COX-1 NSAIDs. Um, so, quite honestly, if you have a person that is on aspirin, for instance, this morning, I took 81 milligrams of aspirin. Why? Because, you know, there's pretty good proof that it prevents MIs. I'm otherwise healthy. I don't have urticaria. Why shouldn't I take 81 milligrams of aspirin this morning? But, Quite honestly, if I had urticaria, would I stop my aspirin? You bet I would, because aspirin makes it more difficult. Also, I took, you know, 440 milligrams of naproxen this morning. Isn't it nice to have added a few birthdays? Well, the fact is that that makes my life better at the same time that it makes urticaria worse. So if you can stop COX-1 NSAIDs, if you can stop aspirin, that's great. Now, if someone came, comes into me with urticaria, and they've had three prior myocardial infarctions. Do you think I'm gonna stop their aspirin? Are you crazy? So it's harder to treat, the patients need to recognize that, but that's okay. Uh, or by contrast, you know, my wife, uh, you know, has got a little bit of uh, uh, osteoarthritis, just like her husband, and she takes COX-2 inhibitors. Why? Because she has chronic urticaria, and COX-2 inhibitors in the NSAID category don't do this. Yes, they have higher risk of cardiovascular events and cerebrovascular events. But, on the other hand, COX-2s are much better in the setting of urticaria. Foods. People can eat shrimp, break out within a few minutes to an hour or so of exposure, and it's cleared within a few days. Food exposures, though, are very rarely a cause of chronic urticaria. I've only met a few people in my life that I'm convinced have uh, er chronic urticaria due to foods. It can happen. It's just not a very common thing. Now, people in this country believe we are what we eat, so it must be due to my foods. Um, now, if we are what we eat, why do we have a problem with people being so overweight in America? Oh, well, whatever. So people, you know, they want to attribute their foods, but they're not paying attention to what they're eating. Okay, back to itch. Now, um, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, uh, a couple of decades ago going to a, uh, an urticaria clinic at St. John's Institute in, in uh, London and spending some time with Malcolm Greaves. Malcolm uh, is an amazing guy, uh, now long retired, but um, he had this theory that chronic urticaria is autoimmune. 
And the reason is, okay, so you can eliminate allergens, doesn't do diddly for people. You can suppress it by using drugs that treat other autoimmune diseases. Hmm. Uh, you know, aspirin, or not aspirin, but prednisone, methotrexate, cyclosporin, all these kinds of things. And avoidance of allergens doesn't help people. And he also did these things, these studies of what's called transfer factor, when you can take blood out of patients with urticaria, give the serum to patients without urticaria and make urticaria in people who don't have urticaria. That is, you can transfer urticaria from one person to the next. And that sounds a lot like an autoimmune disease. This was in an era before there was such a thing as hepatitis B or C. You could take serum out of one person and inject it into another. And his group um, has subsequently found that one third of all patients with chronic urticaria have a single autoantibody that explains their disease. Um, uh, and this is a functional uh, high affinity autoantibody that binds to the mast cell IgE receptor and turns it on and doesn't turn it off. Um, there are probably other autoantibodies as well, but this one explains um, one third of all patients with chronic urticaria. And if you look at patients uh, 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 that have other autoimmune diseases, that they have an even higher proportion of this. You can actually test for this commercially in patients that insist that I do the test for this. You can get a test for it. There are some send-out labs that do it. It doesn't really help people, but you know, if they want to have it done, it's great. In terms of physical examination, you scratch people's back. I like doing this to see how reactive their skin is, not only when they present initially, but when they subsequently present, just so that you can validate how they're doing. Because, you know, when patient people are really dermatographic, no matter what they say, they're out of control. And when they're very, very scantily dermatographic or not, they're doing great. Now, lab studies are worthless. Um, quite honestly, I do no lab studies. Well, I will do an appropriate lab study in any individual that requests it. Um, uh, however, they're really of psychologic utility, and I'm not treating people's psyches necessarily. In fact, there was an evidence-based medicine study. It was done at the, in the Netherlands. It was a one-year study, and here was the design. Um, two expert physicians in managing chronic urticaria had folks present to them. They ordered any laboratory test, did any history they thought was appropriate, and anyway, they were treated prospectively for one year. Behind them was an expert panel, and basically every lab test in the universe was drawn on this group of individuals, and the expert panel, at the end of a year, asked the question, what laboratory test made a difference in the management of any individual patient? And of 220 patients, one and only one patient uh, had a laboratory test that was useful. This was a patient in whom uh, the history of exotic foreign travel was missed, and the patient had parasitosis. And in that single patient, um, less than a CBC was helpful. A white blood cell count differential in hemoglobin, the hematocrit, was useless. So, uh, however, in that patient, if the history of exotic foreign travel was gleaned, there would have been no useful lab tests. But, you know, there are patients who come in to see me, and they say, I hear that I could have parasites, and I want to have my stool checked for ova and parasites. Is it irrational? No, it's not irrational. However, my suggestion for that patient is absolutely let's get this done if you're concerned about it but I want you to bring the specimen directly to the laboratory. Do not bring it to my office. Um, allergy testing is probably completely worthless. 
But, uh, you know, uh, now what does respiratory allergy testing have to do with urticaria? You, you tell me. Um, there's no data for this. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, my own daughter benefited from uh, uh, allergy testing because she has horrible asthma and has been through um, desensitization, which has helped her. But what does, you know, testing for mouse dander have to do with, uh, you know, uh, urticaria? Show me the data. I work with some allergies. If people want to be tested and go through the $1,000 regime of uh, having scratch prick immunocap testing, fine. I send them to reasonable allergists. Now, a reasonable allergist is a person, in my opinion, who tests people and says, well, I find that you're allergic to mouse dander, but since you're not a laboratory technician, this probably has no relevance. Why don't you have a nice life? As opposed to the one who says, Oh, I see you're allergic to mouse dander. You probably have a problem in your house. Let's put you through a three-year desensitization program. Yeah, come in every you know, week for the next year, and then we'll decrease. You know, that stuff is crazy. Um, so what do you do with folks? If you can identify um, exacerbating factors, get rid of them. I mean, that's not so easy sometimes, but you know, uh, every time if someone uh, you know, takes their NSAID, they, sh they, should, uh, they, they get worse, they should avoid that. Um, Exercise and heat makes everything that itches itch worse. That gives no information. Systemic corticosteroids are the most effective approach. There is no more effective approach. And patients come in and lie to me. They say, I don't respond to prednisone. Oh, whoop-de-doo, someone put them on uh, 30 milligrams a day. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, for my own allergic contact dermatitis, it took me 100 milligrams to control my allergic contact dermatitis. The nuclear weapon of dermatology is one gram, that's 1,000 milligrams a day of IV infusion of solumedrol. You know, there's no known inflammatory disease in dermatology that does not respond to a gram a day of solumedrol. It just doesn't happen. Um, now, I'm not saying we should do this for all of our patients. I have broken hips, I've broken shoulders, I've broken necks. You know, what I feel fine about is that everybody's hip and shoulder and back and stuff that I've broken, I've done so to save their life. You know, when they have pemphigus vulgaris, you know, you're trying to save their life. You know, pemphigus vulgaris has a 90% two-year mortality rate untreated. You know, you're willing to take some risks. But short-term corticosteroids are really helpful uh, in the setting of urticaria. Uh, and, you know, I don't hesitate to use these. Just one thing worth considering. For allergic contact dermatitis, you can give people a morning dose, have a nice life, no big deal. It seems to work fine. But with diseases like urticaria, it, drugs like this only work when they're in the serum. Prednisone, for instance, has a, uh, uh, an elimination half-life of three and a half hours, which means that if they take a morning dose in the evening, they have no drug on board. So it makes no sense to do daily dosing. You want to divide the dose in, in half, probably, um, but that raises the toxicity, and there are different doses for every individual. But you know, given the fact that you know I've made steroid psychosis, I've made you know diabetes go crazy, hypertension go crazy. You know, these are not perfect drugs. The H1 antihistamines are good drugs, but they're not the most effective. But I think H1s are great, um, and you know. I like the lesser sedating products as opposed to the more sedating products. Quite honestly, I don't want the truck driver driving down the highway in back of me to be falling asleep at the wheel and ramming into me when there are equally good drugs that don't make people asleep. And it, there is medical legal precedent for suing physicians 
for making, you know, for making patients too drowsy, particularly when we have lots of therapeutic alternatives which are much less drowsy-inducing. Now, yes, I work for the pharma industry, do lots of phase three clinical trials. I actually work for a pharma industry, helping them to design trials. But, you know, uh, 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 I, I just like to show this. Um, now, I took 30 milligrams this morning of loratadine, uh, which is the generic for Claritin for my allergic rhinitis. That's three times the recommended U.S. dose for adults. I have horrible allergic rhinitis, and my dose every day varies from 10 to 40 milligrams. Now, this is uh, uh, just an illustration of the relative cost of one pill or capsule per day uh, for antihistamines, ranging in price from $141 down to $2 for divenhydramine. Now, it says here, loratadine, uh, these are all prices from drugstore.com uh, from a couple months ago, cost $7. Well, I don't pay that. I get mine at Costco. I get 300 10 milligram tablets for $11. 300 for $11. I'll show you in a little while why I take loratadine. Uh, is it the most effective drug? Maybe not but it's a pretty darn good one and it sure is cheap. Now, years ago, I put together this, um, uh, uh, so, well, it was at the time, um, you know, maybe 15 years ago, it was my equivalent of a meta-analysis. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, some of these drugs don't even exist anymore, but I still like this slide and I'll, I'll go through this. One is better, two is worse. These are randomized controlled trials comparing different antihistamines. Um, uh, C is cetirizine or Zyrtec. A is estemazole, was hismonel, very good antihistamine, withdrawn for cardiac toxicity. Um, L is loratadine, T is terfenidine. Terfenidine was the drug called Seldane. Seldane was the first true non-sedating antihistamine in the United States, and um, uh, terfenidine uh, was remarkable for another reason. Terfenidine is the reason that at football games, we have nonstop Cialis commercials, absolutely nonstop commercials, because terfenidine was the first drug that was directly marketed to patients, and it was a really crappy drug. Let me just show, give you an insight here. Um, so in these randomized control trials, astelazine more effective than terfenidine, loratadine more effective than terfenidine, cetirizine more effective than terfenidine, loratadine more effective than terfenidine, cetirizine more effective than terfenidine. When it was available, terfenidine, again withdrawn for cardiac toxicity, was the least effective antihistamine available. Um, now, it sold fabulously well. A junky drug was directly marketed to consumers through television ads, print ads, and it sold like gangbusters. When it hit the, it started out somewhere around, I can't remember, something like 50 or $80 million a year in sales. And when it hit a billion, everybody else started looking at this saying, we're gonna start selling to consumers too. And it's all about sell day. So anyway, well, terfenidine was withdrawn from the market because of cardiac tax toxicity. And Seldane was the least effective known antihistamine, and it was replaced by a drug one-third less effective milligram per milligram than this drug. Any idea what that is? Death silence. Well, it's called fexofenidine. 
Fexofenadine is significantly less effective than, than, uh, 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 than its parent compound, um, and it's a drug we still have on the market. Now, its advantage, it's the, in the United States, it's the only drug that is truly non-sedating, okay? Why? Because it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. However, it is absolutely the single least effective known antihistaminic agent. There's never been a drug released less effective than this. In fact, um, uh, 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 Seldane or terfenidine was approved at the dose for urticaria of 60 milligrams twice daily. Well, fexofenadine ran their urticaria trials as 60 milligrams twice daily and they failed. And then they ramped up to 180 milligrams a day, which I'll show you data for later, and they found an effect at one-third higher dose. Does that mean it's a better drug? I doubt it. And one of the other interesting things about this drug is it's the single most cardiotoxic drug in the antihistamine group we have in the United States. Terfenidine was withdrawn because of cardiac toxicity. Well, fexofenadine's a little safer, but then there are case reports like this. A guy was started on an antihistamine for itching. Why? I have no idea. Antihistamines have no effect on itch, but that's a whole other story. And so he uh, was found to not be doing well. He had prolonged QT interval. He was admitted to a cardiac uh, monitoring unit. The fexofenadine was stopped. His QT interval uh, went back to normal. Then he was rechallenged. Uh, whoops, we have some kind of new software available from Apple. Uh, so, uh, can I have the tech folks uh, help us and not download um, uh, something to help with the iPod? Can I have some AV help here, please? Please? Thank you. Great. Anyway, thanks. So, here's what happened on a cardiac monitoring unit is that um, this guy developed polymorphic VTAC after being rechallenged with uh, fexofenadine. My suggestion is it's the least effective known antihistamine. It's got these cardiac issues. Why bother, you know? Why bother? But you can use it. Um, and quite honestly, probably the risk of cardiotoxic death is less than the risk of uh, death from peanuts. Um, people asphyxiate every year from peanuts. Uh, you know, kiddos, they inhale them and they asphyxiate. Um, just for curiosity's sake, when I was growing up, um, I never knew one person allergic to peanuts. But my teenage kids, no kids in their class, they don't, they don't go to a big school, in their class who carry around EpiPens with them at all times because they anaphylax due to peanuts. Um, we have created an amazing allergic society. So, and I'm not, you know, bad-mouthing peanuts. I like peanuts, but um, anyway, uh, you know, anaphylaxis is part of the urticaria spectrum. Cetirazine is a decent antihistamine. It's just a bit sedating. It makes me kind of tired. And it's kind of a marginal drug, but it's cheap. You know, you can get it at discount stores really inexpensively. And it's a reasonably modern antihistamine. Um, now, here's my uh, favorite randomized control trial. And one of the things that it answers is how many people clear on the drug. Now, I'm not interested in a statistically significant improvement in a wheel score. What I'm interested in is, you know, how many people are free of disease? And this is a very typical study. This was a randomized controlled trial. 
tests done in India, patients were started on fexofenadine at 180 a day or cetirizine at 10 milligrams a day, that's Zyrtec. Uh, and, you know, very typical results. 5% um, of patients on fexofenadine cleared. Whoop-de-doo, I've got a great drug for you. You have a 1 in 20 chance of doing well and a 19 in 20 chance of failing. Hmm, how many patients would take that up? Um, oh, incidentally, you know, how many of you prescribe Penlac nail lacquer? Yeah, we got some uh, up front. You know, I think it's absolutely safe. Um, now, the data that got it approved show that somewhere, uh, you know, if you use it every day for 48 weeks, you get uh, somewhere between a 2 and 3% cure rate. Or you can look at it the other way, I'm the glasses half empty person, a 97 to 98% failure rate. Look at the PDR, don't believe me because I'm an idiot, just read the PDR. Now when patients came in with, with uh, uh, the, uh, with, with the uh, uh, advertisement from Parade Magazine, said, will you prescribe this? I said, absolutely. You know, it's a very safe drug, but you know, has somewhere in the vicinity of a 97 to 98% failure rate. Hmm, not one person wanted to be prescribed a drug with that kind of outcome. And here we have a 95% failure rate, and fexofenadine at its height was selling a bit over $1.5 billion a year in the United States, the least effective antihistamine. Isn't that the triumph of marketing over science? It's spectacular. Levocetirazine is our uh, newest antihistamine in the United States. There are others elsewhere. Now, let's think about this. If you remember your organic chemistry, if you ever took organic chemistry, um, cetirazine is racemic cetirazine. We've got dextro and levocetirazine right and left. Well, it turns out dextro is the more sedating component, but it turns out also dextro has some activity. The people at UCB won't tell you that. But um, so you get rid of the dextro, you, so you leave behind some of the, uh, uh, a lot of the toxicity, but you also leave behind a little bit of the efficacy. Um, and so, but it is less sedating. It's also incredibly expensive. Um, and here's a nice study comparing levocetirazine with desloratadine um, in, uh, in idiopathic urticaria showing identical outcomes. There's no difference. Um, and there's data showing that, well, maybe in, in vitro, that is inside someone's test tube, that there may be a superiority over things like cetirazine, but I need a randomized control trial, not in test tubes, because last I checked, I don't treat test tubes, I treat people. Loratadine, which is what I took this morning, is unbelievably cheap. They call it non-sedating, but that ain't true. That ain't true. My wife, who I trust intimately, says that it sedates her, and it's true. Now, at 10 milligrams a day in adults, um, there's no greater sedation compared with placebo. That doesn't mean it's non-sedating. But as you push the dose up, sedation profile increases because this drug cr crosses the bl blood-brain barrier. And here's a nice study. Um, loratadine versus cetirazine, okay, I'm, I'm a randomized controlled trial freak. And this was a study, um, uh, randomized controlled trial done in Europe, um, and this was the clearance rate, the gold standard. 63% um, at the end of a month were, was free of disease on loratadine, 45% on cetirazine, and placebo didn't do very well, and loratadine also worked more rapidly. Um, so. My own daughter that I'm managing with her chronic urticaria goes to see her pediatrician. 
Her pediatrician says she's on 30 milligrams a day. She's a real skinny mini, so this is not a trivial dose for, for her. Uh, 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 she wants to change her from loratadine to cetirizine. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. For lots of other reasons, we fired this pediatrician, but there's a random ice control trial evidence showing in a population of patients with chronic urticaria that, um, uh, that she wants to switch her to the inferior drug. That doesn't make any sense, not to me. Um, please show me the data. Now, I'd be the first to admit, this study by Guerra is not easy to find. If you do a PubMed search, you won't find this study. Here's a, you know, just a message to you out there. I do tons and tons of literature searches, but whenever I do a PubMed search, I now do a parallel search on Google, because you can find this study on Google but it does not exist in PubMed. And the reason for that is that when the uh, Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology published this in 1994, it was a new journal and this was not PubMed referenced. So it doesn't exist in PubMed. So I can't blame the pediatrician for not knowing about this study, uh, but nevertheless, I'm not gonna agree to switch my daughter to a less effective drug. Clarinex or desloratadine is the only long-acting antihistamine we have. Its half-life is 27 hours. All the others are much shorter. Um, so that's a real advantage, although it takes a while to load people up. Um, but it's also incredibly, incredibly uh, expensive. And this is just um, a plot of extracellular H1 receptor affinity for various antihistamines, showing, of course, desloratadine has the highest, uh, who has the lowest, fexofenidine, and others are in between. Um, one that's on this list, chlorpheniramine, is an over-the-counter agent. That's chlortrimeton. It's more expensive, but it's, it's out there. It's also quite sedating. I don't like sedating drugs, but it's a respectable over-the-counter drug. It's not bad. Okay. Now, um, uh, some of you in the audience didn't choose your bra or panties or blouses or shirts from the one-size-fits-all category of clothing at the store. You might just have chosen your size. Now, um, uh, just for curiosity's sake, um, any idea what the world's leading selling pharmacologic product is? One drug. Lipitor, excellent, excellent. Lipitor sells $10 billion a year, okay? Pfizer's shaking in their boots when that goes off patent, but um, 10 billion a year. And, and this is relevant for a very good reason, that Lipitor is available in 10, 20, and 40 milligram sizes. Why? Because different people need different dosage sizes. And when you've got a $10 billion a year drug, you can afford to develop lots of different dosage sizes. In fact, when this, the original phase uh, two clinical trial was done for Lipitor, uh, they ran doses everywhere from placebo up to 80 milligrams a day, and they winnowed out and ended up, I think they ran six doses, and they ended up uh, sticking with three, and they all found you know, that you know, 40 was more effective than 20 was more effective than 10. But when you're gonna sell a lot, you can afford to develop lots of dosage sizes. When you've got a much smaller market, 
you come out with one dosage size. Does that mean that one size is the correct size for every individual? What a shock, maybe not. And here was a trial that was published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and it looked at levocetirazine and desloratadine, and here's what it found. Here's kind of some amazing story. When you increase the dose in chronic idiopathic urticaria, you get a better effect. And up to four times the recommended dosage is more effective than the standard dose. I guess we're all surprised that not everybody responds to the same dose, just like every, not everybody needs the same size underwear. Well, you know, this is no surprise, but I've had um, pharmacy benefit plans tell me that, you know, this uh, drug is only approved to XYZ dose, so that's the only dose you can use in an individual. That's insane, but, you know, whatever. It has nothing to do with appropriateness of care, it's all about the money. For instance, you know, if you write a prescription for triamcinolone in a young child, you'll never get a call back from the pharmacy because even though it is not approved in children, it's never been tested in children, nobody will ever test it in children for safety or efficacy, it's cheap. And so your insurance you know, plans want you to prescribe the cheap drugs. They don't care about safety and efficacy, they want cheap. Diphenhydramine will put people to sleep. Uh, I can take this and fly over the Pacific Ocean, no problem. You know, I can't remember the last time I recommended this drug because I just don't want folks to be falling asleep. I don't want kids to be falling asleep in class. I mean, if you want to recommend it, that's fine, but it's no better than any other antihistamine. It's really sedating. Chlorpheniramine sedating too. It's a good antihistamine. Hydroxazine, it's no better than any of the others, but it wipes you out. Back when I uh, was prescribed this for my atopic dermatitis, it wiped me out. Um, uh, and when you look at brain activity on these drugs, they slow brain activity. So when patients complain of tiredness, it's not bizarre, it's real. Now there are other antihistamines like doxepin. Doxepin is a tricyclic antidepressant drug, but quite honestly, it has antihistaminic activity. It's actually no more effective than hydroxyzine or any other antihistamine, but it's, it's an okay antihistamine. Um, I tr tend not to prescribe much of this only because it causes so much sedation and postural hypotension and lots of other things, but it has an amazing half-life of its active metabolite. Now, is there any value to adding H2 receptor antagonists? Good question, we don't know. Um, now, what I want is a modern antihistamine plus an H2 receptor antagonist plus a modern antihistamine without it. And that study has never been done. There have been studies like diphenhydramine is more effective than famotidine. Now, that gives no useful information. Uh, you know, and similar kinds of studies. Or diphenhydramine, this is one of my favorite Diphenhydramine plus ranitidine more effective than diphenhydramine. But this was not a study of urticaria. It was urticaria, angioedema, unrecognized or uh, unexplained strider, and acute pruritic rash, and the total duration of follow-up was two hours in an ED. I mean, I don't know what to do with two hours worth of data. So what about other things? Well, stenozolol used to be available uh, as a as a androgenic steroid. We, we had it withdrawn from the US market two or three years ago. But what I like about this is it's a nice clinical trial. Cetirazine plus the drug versus cetirazine alone. And what do you find? The drug helped uh, versus the antihistamine alone. But don't worry about it. You can't prescribe it. 
Here's what you can prescribe. Leukotriene receptor antagonists. Um, there are now two randomized control trials that show that cetirizine plus a leukotriene receptor antagonist is more effective than cetirizine alone. Decent data. Um, uh, there's uh, uh, Montelukast, which is singular, and Accolate, which is Zephyrlukast. They're both probably the same. I only like Montelukast better because it's once a day. It's a lot easier to take drugs once a day. Nobody takes drugs twice a day. Now, here's a randomized controlled trial in chronic uh, idiopathic urticaria showing that theophylline, theophylline is helpful. You know what? I've tried this. I've never gotten anyone to tolerate theophylline. Back in the ancient days when I was in medical school, every bad asthmatic was on this. Zero asthmatics are now on this because it's so hard to tolerate. But it probably is helpful. Dapsone has randomized controlled trial evidence showing it's helpful. Um, in fact, my own dear bride, long before this randomized controlled trial was available in 2008, my dear bride did not respond to significant doses of antihistamines, and I'm not bashful. Uh, she was helped a little bit by leukotriene receptor antagonist, uh, but um, uh, she cleared the day she started Dapsone. Now, I didn't have randomized controlled trial evidence at the time, but it didn't bother me. I can, you know, I go forward. So absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Dapsone's one of my favorite drugs. However, I'm respectful of it. It requires some laboratory monitoring. You know, you can wipe out people's blood count. Uh, it's worthwhile to do a G6PD before you, you start, but it's a good drug. Cyclosporin A is a very good drug. I've only seen one patient who has failed to respond to cyclosporin. Now, cyclosporin is the kind of drug that I use when someone presents to me having gained you know, 50 kilos on long-term corticosteroids, they've got brittle diabetes, their bones are non-existent, and you know, they've been managed with chronic systemic steroids long-term. This is a wonderful drug, and it's much safer than systemic steroids. However, it's got its issues, and it's not curative, it's just suppressive. Uh, so, now, another uh, drug that you can't use uh, is levamisole. Uh, levamisole used to be available in the United States as an anti-inflammatory drug. It was withdrawn over 10 years ago. But I, I want to make a couple of uh, points here. Uh, one is that, um, you know, uh, this is the right way to do a trial. A good systemic antihistamine plus the drug versus a good systemic antihistamine alone. This is reasonable trial design. So this was actually published just two years ago. The drug's still available in lots of other countries, just not the United States. And from left field, there was a study published of warfarin, uh, uh, you know, that's Coumadin, for those of you who don't know, uh, showing that in a small group of people, it seemed to have an effect. Now, I'm a little dubious about this on two counts. One is that a randomized controlled trial was done on three subjects. N equals three. I don't know, I'm dubious about N equals three. And by the way, I'm a little dubious about the risk-benefit relationship. Um, you know, if I had atrial fibrillation and, and I was at risk of stroke, would I take Coumadin? You bet, no doubt, I don't want a stroke. On the other hand, if I had urticaria, would I take, would I take Coumadin? I, I don't know about that. Now. A nice randomized controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine, that's Plaquenil, um, showing that patients got benefit. So nice randomized controlled trial. So think about it, you know. Again, it's an autoimmune drug. Coltracine has one small randomized controlled trial with N equals 12, showing there possibly was an effect, but it was hard to tell, you know. 
Colchicine's an interesting drug. It's gone from nine cents a pill over the past year to $5 a pill. It's fascinating. But some patients, uh, including one I saw with chronic urticaria this week, uh, has done well on colchicine. Now, in the most bizarre world, um, one patient I saw this week with chronic urticaria, I'm treating with Adderall. That's dextroamphetamine. This was a case series of four patients in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology that responded to Adderall. Um, now, I know this is absurd, and I know Adderall is a controlled substance. This gal is interested in treating her urticaria, not getting high. She doesn't sell it on the streets. But quite honestly, if everything else has failed, I start thinking about Adderall. And there are lots of other treatments that have been reported successful. Sulfasalazine, methotrexate, IVIG, plasmapheresis, danazole, uh, 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 dialysis to treat chronic urticaria. Oh, you know, there are lots of reports um, out there. You do whatever you want. Oh, back to hydroxychloroquine. Um, well, um, so how do you approach patients? Number one, you want to achieve 24-hour histamine blockade. Um, and that may take more than the standard dose. So I generally uh, jack up doses to four times the recommended dose if needed, you know? I mean, if half the adult dose is all you need, half is fine. But, you know, I took three times the recommended dose of an antihistamine this morning. I'm still, you know, alive and coherent. Um, there's nothing that's more effective than systemic steroids. Choose an agent that's very well tolerated. Um, and, you know, if you can identify exacerbating factors, don't hesitate. I use a lot of leukotriene receptor antagonists. That's my first non-antihistaminic drug I go to. Why? Because they're so darn safe. They really are. Now, just for fun, because, you know, there's fun stuff out there. Anaphylaxis and death due to a kiss. Some of you may have heard this. This was five years ago, announced in the news media. Uh, a Quebec teenager died of anaphylaxis after her boyfriend kissed her a while after eating a peanut butter sandwich. Now, you know, anaphylaxis and urticaria are bizarre, and if you're allergic to something, it may not take much. So, fast peanut facts. So five minutes after eating a peanut butter sandwich, you can detect peanut allergen in the saliva. Just for curiosity's sake, I don't know who measured this. This is fun research. Up to 12 microliters of saliva can be transmitted in a big affectionate kiss. And saliva can contain up to 1,000 micrograms per milliliter of the main peanut allergen, era H1. So a single kiss can transfer up to 89 micrograms of peanut protein. Why did she die? It, it can take far, far less than one milligram. Remember, in the United States, there are more deaths due to, uh, due to bee stings than snake bites. I'm not saying rattlesnake bites are of no major consequence medically, but, you know, allergic phenomena are not dose-related. Um, anyone who has anaphylaxis, um, I provide them with EpiPens, plural, not one, multiple EpiPens. Um, and I want them to keep them with them at all times. We had a faculty member interviewed with us a number of years ago for a job, and just for curiosity's sake, uh, you know, this faculty member was telling me this story um, that she and her husband were out in their backyard. Um, one of their kids, they have no idea what happened, suddenly anaphylaxed, started turning blue. They thought about calling 911, but the kid wasn't breathing at all. 
they realized there was no way the EMS was gonna make it to them. So they threw the kid into the car and headed down maximal speed towards the hospital. They realized that, quite honestly, the kid was gonna die long before they made it to the hospital. So one of them had the brilliant idea, they saw a drugstore. They ran in with a purple kid, non-breathing kid, into the drugstore and yelled at the pharmacist, give me an EpiPen. Pharmacist dropped everything, grabbed them an EpiPen, and they saved the life of the kid. After that, I brought some epinephrine home to my house. Uh, you know, <laughs> no one's ever anaphylaxed in my house, but you know, I've got a little vial in my house, you know? <laughs> Couldn't be helpful. Anyone who tells me they have respiratory symptoms, you know, maybe they're lying. I don't know. They go home with a prescription for, for an EpiPen. So I, I take anaphylaxis very seriously. Ethanol urticaria. A guy flared only with exposure to ethanol. It was uh, confirmed with multiple blinded challenges. Wheat urticaria. Exposure to wheat can do it. I mean, we're bizarre people, you know. Uh, all kinds of things can happen. Um, allergy to penicillin triggered postcoital urticaria on three occasions when a woman's sexual partner ingested dicloxacillin. Now, you know, all drugs come out in breast milk, all drugs come out in, in, in semen. So, you know, is this believable? You bet it's believable. Um, human semen urticaria uh, was reported uh, 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 in a woman uh, a short time after having sex with her boyfriend. Uh, but not two former partners, and uh, the diagnosis was confirmed by prick testing. I won't go into the details of that. Uh, but as an addendum to this uh, case report, it said that this relationship did not continue. Now, in the most bizarre world, a woman had a copper-containing IUD inserted. She developed urticaria, chronic urticaria. She was scratch-tested to copper. This is an appropriate use of allergy testing. She was found to be allergic to copper. The IUD was removed, her urticaria went away. Now you can't conclude absolutely that it's the uh, IUD, but it's a pretty good story. Well, this is the Paritis Research Institute and unanswered questions go one way and unquestioned answers go the other way. I'm gonna stop at that moment and just ask if you have any uh, insights, questions, thoughts uh, before we go on to our next presentation. Uh, we have a brave soul. Thank you for a great talk. Um, my question is, when you're trying to find what size um, antihistamine fits the patient, how do you approach that? Okay, so I'll speak about adults. Um, uh, uh, now, I know uh, just to, you know, I'm a country doctor, so I don't have to, you know, pay attention to the Harriet Lane book. In kiddos, I figure, you know, there are uh, plenty of adult women that are about 50 kilos. So, you know, 25 kilos I call a half an adult. Uh, 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 half of that, you know, I call a quarter of an adult. So I just dose accordingly. So typically, you know, with an antihistamine, um, what I'll do for um, either acute or bad chronic urticaria is I'll start out at anywhere from two to four times standard dose of an antihistamine. I just start them out with a high dose. Um, uh, and. And then, quite honestly, if they get control, they can back on down. Um, that's no problem. Um, typically, at a first visit for urticaria, if they've not been exposed to such agents, I'll also give them a prescription for a leukotriene receptor antagonist, saying, if you don't respond to the antihistamine, just get it filled. Let's, let's just start you on it. Um, I don't think you need to wait. This is not one of those situations where you have to wait six months before you figure out if you have a therapeutic response. 
Um, so, you know, I tell people that the right dose of any medicine is the least amount that it takes to do a good job. If the least amount is four times the recommended dose, great. If the least amount is half the recommended dose, great, no problem. So, you know, there's no one right dose, but I start big. Um, and in fact, about 10 years ago, our residents had a t-shirt for me printed up that said, go big or stay home. <laughs> I mean, that's my motto, I go big. Uh, so, uh, and, and you know, in dermatology, we're a little bit risk averse, we're kind of bizarre. You know, I was having a conversation with one of my buddies, Baird Powell, who uh, is primarily a leukemia oncologist, and he says, we round up toxic doses. You know, just a little different perspective, but with really safe drugs, you can do no harm. I would not, however, push up the dose of fexofenadine. I, I just wouldn't do it. Yeah, next question. With the big doses, do you do BID dosing or just once in the morning like what you do? I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that. With, with the bigger dosages, the four times the dosages, are you doing them all in the morning like what you do? Or are you that's that's a good BID? question. So um, it depends upon the drug. And actually, uh, I didn't touch on that, but for instance, loratadine, um, cetirizine, you know, two commonly used drugs, have elimination half-lives of about eight hours. Meaning that if you really need a high dose of the drug, that you have tremendous variability in the day. I know on the packages it says, you know, last 24 hours. That's a lie. A drug with a half-life of eight hours has significant variability to blood levels over the course of a day. So with a drug like loratadine or cetirizine, I'd recommend twice daily dosing. Uh, you know, just split whatever dose you want to use into the morning and evening. Obviously, if they have really minimal requirements, it won't make any difference. But otherwise, pushing, pushing up the dose is worthwhile. For the longest acting drug, uh, which is desloratadine, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, its half-life is 27 hours, meaning that, you know, if you give it even every other day, it'll work fine once they're at steady state. But, you know, at $141 per 30-day supply for one, that's not very good. I'll take one more question. Yeah. If you failed your antihistamines, you're moving into, like, cyclosporins, how long do you do a trial? I had patients that come back on these, and I don't know how long to leave them on or yeah. you take them off. Okay. So um, for most drugs for urticaria, the, the trial duration should be uh, one month or less. It usually does not take very long to figure things out. Um, uh, there's an exception to that rule, and it's, it's a basic pharmacologic exception, which is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. That's a, a drug that I pull out of my hat on an occasional basis. Just for curiosity's sake, ultimate trivia, any idea what the elimination half-life of hydroxychloroquine is? Okay. None of our residents know either. I have to go into Wikipedia to show them. That's my favorite online source for drug, uh, for pharmacologic information. If in a Google search engine you put the name of the drug in and you put in Wiki, and you'll come up with the uh, uh, with the elimination half life. No trouble. Well, the elimination half life is between one and two months for hydroxychloroquine. So for that drug, it takes somewhere between five and ten months to reach steady state. So I'd go a lot longer on that. But in general, if you don't have response within a few weeks, ain't gonna happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, but then do you leave them on it, like indefinitely? You know, I mean, I, I believe that you wanna get patients off all drugs you can, but quite honestly, you know, my wife has had chronic urticaria for over a decade. 
Um, I mean, she does well with her current regimen, but uh, uh, so I think, you know, I have a patient that uh, he now lives, uh, he used to live in my area, uh, actually about two hours away from me. Now he lives um, uh, 15 hours away from me by plane, and he still emails me. Um, he's, he's had daily urticaria for over 30 years. He needs long-term management. A lot of people don't. So, you know, when people need treatment, they need treatment. When they don't, it's time to stop. So there's tremendous variability. Thank you. Thanks. Well, let's go on to the second topic of today, if I can have our AV kind folks. Thanks. Thank you.